In verse 14, it says that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bare him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, or Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But unto none of them was Elijah sent, save to Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and they rose up and thrust him out of the city and led him unto the brow of the hill whereupon their city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. Any one of us that was going to have a medical procedure or an operation uh, done or performed upon us, would want to know that the surgeon or the doctor who's doing that procedure knew what he was doing. And for that reason, there is a very strict and comprehensive process for educating uh, and qualifying and certifying those that are in the medical profession. Now, I believe that those that work in the ministry carry an equal liability. Now, we are not dealing with physical issues per se, But we do have the same potential to cause harm or help in the realm of the soul and the spirit, those invisible entities uh, inside of us. Now, unlike the medical profession that has medical boards and medical residencies and all of these things that you must complete and accomplish in order to comply and be certified, the ministry doesn't have those things. There are no ministry boards that you have to pass after eight years of successful study. And then a residency or internship that you have to complete in order to uh, show your worth and prove yourself to be acceptable before God. And the reason why those things don't exist within the ministry is because it would be too easy to fake it. We're dealing with invisible things. 
The soul, no one can touch it. You can't measure issues like depression or comfort. Those things are invisible. They're intangible. And so therefore, it takes more than just the knowledge of facts to be able to be used by God in a realm that is completely invisible. Now, what we do have in this training or calling of the ministry is that we have a heavenly father who sees all things, including the heart and right down to the very core of the heart. And what he does is that he places a calling within a person's life. He calls people into his service. Then he prepares and equips them. And he does that in numerous different ways, sometimes involving professional training in school and sometimes not. But regardless of it, there's a preparation and a training that comes from God. Some have called it the seminary of the Holy Ghost that everyone called by God must go through. And then he tests us to prove whether we're ready and whether we're faithful to him and to the call. And then finally, after bringing us through all of that, he then, God himself, approves a man or a woman and releases them into the ministry by giving them his power and sending them forth to do his will. Well, you say, in all of that, where's the safety net? Because, I mean, when you're talking about the medical realm, if someone doesn't pass their residency or their boards, then they're not released. But someone could sit on a stool or stand in a pulpit or preach the word or claim themselves to be something. But how do you really know if they're approved by God and really called or whether they're just a quack and I'm trusting the spiritual condition of my soul to someone who doesn't know a thing of what they're talking about? Well, here's the safety net. Is that it's up to God to infuse Holy Spirit power and Holy Spirit influence into and then through the life that he approves. And that's how you tell the difference between someone who's self-appointed service towards God and someone who's been approved by him and called by him to be used by him. Paul the Apostle said it this way. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 18. And he said this. He says, For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. That is that God releases those he's called into ministry once they've been called, equipped, and tested. And then he sends them forth with the power of his spirit to perform his work and his will in the world. Now, as true as that is for anyone who serves in the ministry today who's called by God, so also this same process was followed by Christ himself. He was certainly called of God. The angel said to Mary that that holy thing that is in your womb, he shall be great and he shall be called the son of the highest. There was a calling, obviously, upon Jesus, the son of God, for the ministry that he would perform. He was then prepared and equipped for 30 years, forged in the furnace of life and prepared in all things In every way that anyone else will ever be prepared, Jesus went through those same things, being prepared and equipped. Then he was tested. It's the event that took place in the Bible study that we had last week, where for 40 days, Jesus, without food, was tempted of the devil, proving the value of what had been infused into his life and the calling that had been placed there proving that he was acceptable and ready and able to rightly represent the Father to those whom the Father would have him represent him to. And then finally, he is now approved and sent, as we see Jesus in the passage that is before us, now released 
and appointed to get into the ministry now that he has been called into. So called, equipped, tested, and now he's sent forth to represent the Father to the world and ultimately to lay down his life as a ransom for the sins of all mankind. Now, up on the screen, you're going to see a map. And that map is of the land of Israel during the days of Jesus' ministry. And I just want to give to you a little bit of a sketch of this so that you can, in your mind, understand what's taking place with Jesus and in his ministry at this time. Between verses 13 and 14 in Luke, where we just read, there was a whole bunch of events that took place in his ministry that Luke doesn't record. Luke skips a whole bunch of it. If you look at the map and you see where the Dead Sea is at the bottom right-hand side, just above the Dead Sea, you'll see a dot that is circled. That is about the area where Jesus was baptized, where John the Baptist uh, was baptizing Jesus. Then the Judean wilderness would be the surrounding area around it that would just be desert, maybe on the right side of the Jordan River, maybe on the left. All throughout there is the Judean wilderness where the temptation of Christ took place. Now, immediately following those 40 days that Jesus was tested by the devil, Jesus returned to the area where John was baptizing. Because that's when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And some of John's disciples began then following after Jesus Christ as his ministry would begin. The day after the temptation was completed, was the first time that Jesus met Peter and Andrew. It's recorded in John chapter 1. It was when Jesus looked at Peter and he said, you are Simon, but you shall be Peter. And he has that interaction with Peter, Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel right after he came back from the temptation in the wilderness. Then the day after that, so the second day after his temptation, he travels way up into the north, and if you look just to the uh, your left of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see Cana right there, circled in, in yellow highlight. He went to a wedding there the next day. Now, that's quite a distance to travel in a day. But John is specific and clear that it was the day following that he went to that wedding that was there in Cana. So he's at that wedding, maybe for a day or maybe for a week, depending if they followed the custom perfectly. And then from there, it tells us that for a few days, he went with his mother and his brothers into Capernaum, which is the, the highest point that you can see on that map that's circled uh, right there along the Sea of Galilee. He was there for a few days, and then he left, and he went all the way back down into Jerusalem, which if you look way down at the southern portion of the map, you'll see Jerusalem again highlighted in, in yellow uh, down there. And in Jerusalem, just a couple of weeks into the ministry of Christ was the first time that he overturned the tables with a whip and really cleansed the place because they were using it to sell things and make money and pushing out the Gentiles and, I mean, really garnering a name for himself during that trip to uh, Jerusalem. It was the night of that same thing, or maybe the following night, that he has a conversation with a man named Nicodemus who is a ruler of the Jews and a Pharisee. And he says to Jesus, we know that you're come from God because no one could do the things that you're doing unless God is with him. And that interaction that's so famous, John chapter 3, happens during that time in Jerusalem. Well, Jesus finishes that conversation and then he begins to travel north. And we're told in John chapter 4 that he had to, he must, 
He needed to travel through Samaria, which means he went right up through the middle of the land, which was very uncustomary for the Jews. They would usually swing around to the right and travel up along the Jordan River and avoid Samaria altogether because of the hatred that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. But Jesus had an appointment with a woman of Samaria. And he met that woman in Samaria and he saved her soul. And then he saved the souls of a whole village of people that heard her testimony and then heard Jesus' words for himself. And then from there, after a couple days in Samaria, Jesus then moves north back into the Galilee region. And along the way, he passes through Nazareth, which you also see highlighted up there in the north, just to the south of where Cana is. And it's in Nazareth that the portion of our text that we read this morning takes place. Um, where Jesus now comes into the synagogue in the place where he's brought up. And so he comes into Nazareth. And we already learned that Nazareth was more or less a ghetto. It was a place um, that was uh, a a very sin-laden land. And it was held in very low esteem amongst the Israelites. Philip would say, or Nathaniel would say, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? But that's where Jesus was brought up. And so he comes into that place and into the synagogue that most likely he sat in every day of his life for those first 30 years. And when he came in there into the synagogue, he was the one that was given the scroll and he was the one that would read. Now, a synagogue service or a synagogue in those days would typically have two people that worked there or attended to it. One would be the ruler of the synagogue. And that was more or less an administrative position, someone who would uh, take care of the place and make sure that everything was the way it was supposed to be, decently and in order. He was the ruler. And then next to him would be the attendant. And his job would be more or less the janitor, making sure that everything was in order the way it was supposed to be, that the scrolls were well kept. That's the attendant that Jesus now hands the scroll back to. You say, well, who would the teacher be? The teacher would be any qualified Jewish male. And if they had something to share, they could read the the weekly portion of the Torah that would be read, and then they would give a short sermon based upon it. And the service would go something like this. They would come in. There would be no music. They would say a series of prayers, usually 18 prayers that were prescribed that they would then go through in the whole thing. Then they would read the portion. They would have a short sermon. And then there would be a benediction, a short ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you, and they would go home. It was the same thing. (coughs) week after week as they would um, have these services in the synagogue. And so the scene is that Jesus walks into this Nazarene synagogue. He takes the scroll. It's handed to them. And we're told that he finds the place there in Isaiah where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he begins to read these things, a passage from Isaiah chapter 61, uh, verse 1 and the half of uh, verse 2. And so he reads the scripture And then he hands the scroll to the attendant and then he sits down and he begins now to teach with every eye in the place completely fastened upon him. And he begins his message by saying, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your hearing. And then he begins to expound upon the six points that were given there to preach the good news to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives to preach the recovering of sight to the blind, to set free those that are bruised, and to preach acceptance 
from God. It says the acceptable year of the Lord, but God doesn't accept or reject time. He accepts and rejects people. And so the idea is that the time has come wherein the acceptance of God is to be revealed to God's people. And then he stops after those six things, which is interesting because the passage doesn't stop. The passage continues to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus wasn't there to fulfill that that day. He'll come again to fulfill that part of the verse. And thus Jesus purposefully stopped after the second or first half of verse two there. And he said, these are the things that are fulfilled in your sight uh, this day. And all of those six things concern people who have been wounded by sin and that now need a solution. What he says to them essentially is that everyone who's been wounded by sin in whatever way, I have now been sent to bring the solution to all of those sin problems. And every one of the people that would be represented by the six things that Jesus talked about that way, day, needed the same common thing. And that was grace. They needed grace from God. Because the reason that they were in the condition that they were in was because of the fallen sinful condition that has befallen all men. And the solution to the sin problem is that man needs to be forgiven by God, which is what we call grace. And thus Jesus that day preached himself as the savior that would come that was the revelation of God's grace to those that were in need. The book of John chapter 1 verse 17 when it's introducing the person in the coming of Christ it says that the law came by Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And thus Jesus came to be the revelation of God's grace to a lost and sinful world. Well it tells us that the response of the people to the message that Jesus gave that day is it says that they bore witness to him. Which means that the consensus among the people that were there was a great big amen. That when they heard what Jesus had to say, they affirmed it. They said, yes, this is exactly what we need. And this is exactly what we need to hear. And we can agree that unless there's grace and that God gives us grace in some way, then we have no hope. And so it says that they bore witness. Thus, they had no problem with the message that Jesus brought that day. It also tells us that the people's response is that they wondered. That is that they held the message and even the messenger in the way that he gave the message in a place of admiration. They were moved by it. And that was a common reaction to anyone who heard Jesus speak. We read that over and over again. That they marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. That they were astonished because he taught as one that had authority and not as the scribes. They were hearing the truth of God portrayed in such a way from the mouth of Jesus that they had never heard ever before in their life. And it left them, in a sense, awestruck at the things that they were hearing and the way that the things were being said. Now, if you can imagine or if you've ever had it to be your experience where you for years of your life or maybe you hear of someone for years of their life who sits in a church And here's truth expounded, but never hears truth expounded under the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Or never hears the things taken and carried by the Spirit of God and then delivered in the heart in a way that affects change and that moves them deeply inside and changes them inside. And you do that for years. And then one day, you sit in a place where you hear the Word of God expounded and taught or preached under the power of the Holy Spirit of God. 
And you can imagine the difference, or you've experienced the difference in your own life. You can imagine what they went from. They went from the epitome of deadness, never hearing the word of God taught under the power of the Spirit, to then hearing the Son of God empowered by the Spirit, giving them the word of God. And it tells us that they wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. But then it tells us that they began to consider in their own minds. And they began to weigh the content of what he said against the character of the one that was saying it and who they knew him to be. And they begin to say, wait a minute, we know who this is. This is Jesus, who is Joseph's son. He's the one that's grown up in our midst. He was bar mitzvahed here in this very synagogue. He learned the letters of the things that he's learned here. We've seen every day of his life. We know who his parents are. We know that they're not rich or influential people. We know the stigma that's attached to his mother and the rumors that are surrounding his birth. We know everything about this young man who just made, did he make a messianic claim? Did he just say the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me? And then to say that this day the scripture is fulfilled in your sight? And so what this is telling us is though they bore witness to the message and they agreed with it, and though they wondered at the way that it was given and the grace that it was portraying and showing who God was, that once they considered who it was that was giving the message and the fact that they knew him and they were familiar with him, they came to the end, uh, the conclusion themselves, could a poor boy from the ghetto really be the Messiah? And it says that they rejected him. They refused him based upon their familiarity with him. Well, Jesus' response to this rejection that he could perceive that they were uh, holding within their heart is that he told them a proverb. He said, you will surely say unto me, physician, heal yourself. And the things that we have heard done in Capernaum do here among us as well. And the idea or the implication behind the proverb that he's given to them is that you might be able to deny me right now based upon the fact that you're familiar with me, but you will not be able to deny the truth of what I'm saying when it comes back around and you see the fruit that comes out of my life. You can deny it today, but when you hear the rumors later, you'll certainly not be able to ignore the proof of who I am. But then he gives the reason why they were rejecting him. And he says very simply that no prophet is held in honor or accepted in his own country. But that's just a given. It's been that way from the very beginning and it will be that way until Jesus comes back. Is that no prophet will be accepted by those that know him the best. The family members, the community of people, the families that they grew up around. They just will not be able to accept it because quite frankly they just know a little bit too much. Now. He goes on to say that this rejection that they were bringing to him does not come without consequence, that there are consequences to their rejection of the Messiah. And he relays those consequences by reaching into the Old Testament scriptures and giving two examples of times in Israel where the Israelites who were entitled to grace didn't receive it because they didn't think they needed it. And in return, Gentiles who were disqualified technically from receiving grace, that they did receive it. 
The first was during the life of Elijah. And God, seeking to sustain his prophet during the time of the three and a half year famine, was looking for someone that would just give him room and board and take care of him during that time. And there was no one that he could find in Israel. And so he raised up a widow woman from Sarepta, a city in Syria, who was a Gentile who would then sustain Elisha during that time. And she survived the famine because God miraculously provided for her and saved her because of her faith in God and her acceptance of the prophet, even though she was an outsider in Israel. And thus a poor Gentile widow woman who would have four strikes against her in the hearts and mind of any Jewish person found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Someone who was completely disqualified found grace when those that were technically qualified missed out. They didn't get it. The second example is from the life of Elisha, the successor of Elijah. And the story is of Naaman, the Syrian, again, a Gentile who is a proud general of the Syrian army who was a leprous man. But through the process of God's grace and providence, Naaman was led to go seek Elisha to simply ask God for healing. And Jesus says that there were many lepers in Israel in the days of Elisha, but only one was healed. And he wasn't even an Israelite. He was a proud, oppressive, leprous enemy of God. But because he had faith and he accepted God's message, he found grace While all of those in Israel that were technically qualified to receive grace, none of them received it. And so the implication that Jesus is making by telling these stories to those in the synagogue there in Nazareth, the implication is very clear. Is that their rejection of him and of his place as savior made them, the audience there in Nazareth, worse than poor Gentile, widowed, outcast, proud, leprous, enemies of God. Now that's very pointed implication. And it's almost backhanded. But they understood it very, very clearly. Because the Bible says as soon as Jesus finished telling them these words, it says that those that heard him, that they were filled with wrath. They got the message. They understood what he was saying. Is that their rejection of him carried with it consequences. It wasn't a cheap rejection that they were doing. And so it says that they thrust him, first of all, out of the synagogue, and then they led him to the brow of a cliff upon which the city of Nazareth was built, and there they wanted to throw him off of it and kill him a little bit early. But the Bible doesn't tell us how or why. It only tells us that he passed through the midst of them whether that was something supernatural or whether or not Jesus was just that tough that once he turned around and flexed a little bit, they just backed down. We don't know what happened. But it tells us that they weren't able uh, then to do it. So what are the great lessons that are given to us uh, concerning this passage and this event that took place very early in Jesus' ministry? How does it apply to us today? And a couple of things. First of all, it teaches us the reality of spirit-filled rejection. It tells us that Jesus went into Nazareth in the power of the Holy Spirit. That he was being led by God, and even his words and his message were imparted and anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. He was perfect and faithful in his presentation. He even got a response from the people. They wondered at the things that he was saying. And yet even still, empowered, sent, and perfect in his delivery, 
he was still rejected by the people that heard that message. What a person does with the message of salvation and grace that is given to him is never the responsibility of the person who's carrying that message. God leaves the decision with every individual person what they're going to do with the choice that's laid out before them, whether they're going to receive it or whether they're going to deny it. And God gives that leeway. And so it's not up to the messenger to be the one who influences the person. It's up to that person and the influence of the Holy Spirit of God in that person's life to bring them to a place where they will receive the message uh, that we, we give. God doesn't force anyone to receive him. Now, sometimes we think when we consider our family members or our friends who aren't saved, we think, well, if only I could get them to church, or if only I could get them to hear Billy Graham, or if only I could get them to meet so-and-so who would be able to communicate this so much clearer than me. And sometimes we think that by having a better messenger, we'd be more effective in getting a person saved. Not always true. Because here we see the Son of God himself, who had the perfect words and more power than any human ever has, that even he, when he presented a message and gave an offer of salvation, that the people rejected it. Now, having said that, if a person rejects our message, we share with someone and they don't give their life to Christ, or they say, you're out of your mind, you know, and they tell us that, you know, we should just be thrown off a cliff because of what we believe. If that's to happen, may it always be be because they're rejecting the message and not because we've given them a reason to reject the messenger. In other words, there was nothing that they could lay against Jesus in this time and say, well, his life doesn't line up with what he's professing or what he's saying. All they could come up with was, we know this man. And it doesn't make sense to us, probability-wise, that he would actually be the Messiah. That, that doesn't fly in our reason or in our intellect. But there was no moral reason or anything that they could pull up from the history of Jesus and say, well, this is who he, how could he possibly be the Messiah, the way that he used to live? We used to find him behind the shacks in Nazareth, smoking cigarettes and spray painting on the walls. They couldn't lay any of that to Jesus. And may that also be true of us. That though people think we're crazy and though they reject the message that we give, may it never be because we've given them a reason to reject it. May it be because they are prejudiced against uh, the message itself. The second lesson that we learn from this passage is that grace from God is available to sinners and the lost. And when I say sinners and the lost, by that I mean those that are poor, those that are Gentiles, those that are outcast, those that are proud, those that are leprous, and those that are the enemies of God. The exact people that Jesus was uh, talking about when he gave his sermon from Isaiah 61 and those whom he implied when he gave the examples of the life of Elisha and Elisha, the widow uh, and Naaman himself. John chapter 3 verse 17 says that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That the heart and the mind of God is always to forgive sinners. He's not looking to condemn. He's not looking for a reason to cast someone into hell. He's always looking for a way to forgive. And he himself made the greatest way by sending his own son and being in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself. In verse 18, Jesus gave a list of those that he's interested in. And he said, the poor, the brokenhearted, the bound, the blind, the bruised, 
and the rejected. That's who God is interested in when he looks across the sea of humanity. Now, if you can sit here tonight and you can honestly say that none of those things apply to you, and I'm sure that maybe physically speaking, many of us can say, well, I'm not blind or bruised right now. But spiritually, in your soul, if you can honestly say that none of these things apply to your life in any way and that you have been untouched and unharmed by sin thus far throughout your life, then congratulations. Because that puts you in the 1%, or maybe even the less than 1% of humanity that hasn't been stung by sin. But if you are one that can look at this list and say, I certainly do see myself in there, and I carry the wounds of sin within my heart and within my life, then you need to understand that that means that God has something for you. And he has the ability to bring you out of the condition that sin has laid within your heart and to heal it. There's many that are bruised in their heart. There's areas of your life that when certain topics come up, it's like someone rubbing a bruise within your life. And certain things within the mind, damage that's been done because of things or just because of maybe genetics and things in our past. What you need to understand is that that thing that you can never heal yourself or that you think there is no solution for, the gospel and the Christ of the gospel is powerful enough to bring healing in those areas of your life where you thought could never be healed or forgiveness for things that you've done in your life that you thought there could never be forgiveness for. And so God has that for you. And the receiving of that grace that God desires to give comes when you first receive Christ Jesus as Lord. When you look at his life and you hear the claim that he makes that this day this scripture is fulfilled in your sight and you choose to put your faith in that grace, that it is then that you begin to experience the healing as he begins to make you whole. And so grace is available from God. And once you receive grace from God, now you become complete in Christ Jesus. The third thing that we learn from this passage is that grace is not universal. And that is that everyone just doesn't get grace. That because a Savior died on a cross and spilled his blood for the sins of the whole world, which he did spill his blood for the sins of the whole world, that that does not mean that everyone just universally gets forgiven and that in the end, everyone ultimately ends up in heaven. To refuse Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Savior that is the substitution for our sins is to refuse the grace of God because you feel like you don't need it. Because you feel that you can answer before God for the things that you've done or the things that you are. Or that somehow you can make reconciliation for what you are and what you've done through things that you now do. Works or religious things that you try to bring before God. And so you don't need grace. You don't need Jesus to forgive you. Because you can do it yourself. Now if you desire to answer for your own condition and you want to refuse Jesus Christ, then here's the truth that you need to understand is that in God's sight, when he looks at your life, no matter who you are or what you've done, you are worse in his sight than a poor, Gentile, outcast, proud, leprous enemy of God. You bear all of the reproach of every sin that stinks in the nostrils of God if you choose to bear it on your own. If you refuse Christ, you're refusing grace. Now, In our society, and especially, I don't know if it's just the United States of America as a whole or just in the northeast of the United States, 
But we have a problem with people doing things for us. We don't want people paying for things for us. We don't want, we want to do it ourselves. And there's something in our mind that when someone tries to tell us how to do something or that we should do something that we're doing differently, something rises up inside of us and we refuse it. We say, no, 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 I can, I can handle that. I'm good. Or we take it graciously outwardly, but inwardly we're like, who does this person think they are telling me something about this? That's just the way we are. And there's many people that respond to Jesus Christ in that very way. God comes and he says, you cannot fix your sin condition, but I've provided a solution through the Savior, my son. He lived a perfect life and he's willing to impart perfection to you and take away your sin. And you just put your faith in him and stop trying to do it yourself. And the natural reaction of many is to say, no, that's not the way I roll. I can do this thing like our kids, you know. No, dad, I can handle the lawnmower as he chops off his foot, you know, or something. And that's the way many people come to God. And people would rather that there was something that they could do themselves rather than just a trust in Christ. What we should be is thankful that God has provided a way. We shouldn't complain about the way that he has provided and say, God, there should be another or other. But we should say, thank you, God, for what you did. It's interesting that the people that are most apt to reject Jesus are the people that are most familiar with him. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I don't know if that's your experience, but I mean, for years, my mother would beg me to come to church with her on Sundays, and I wouldn't go. She didn't have the authority because of the breakup of the family to force me, and so she'd plead with me and beg me to come to church. And then I got saved. I was born again. And I remember going home and saying, Mom, you're going to be so excited. And I told her what had happened, that I was born again, and that Jesus was real, and that the Bible is true. And I'm telling her all these things that are happening in my life. And she was like, what? You know, and she's like, I don't need that. I go to church. I'm a good person. I'm like, whoa, whoa, no, no. This is what you were begging me to do. This is what you bet. You wake me up early. You begged me to come to church. Now I'm going to church. She said, well, that's not church. That doesn't count. That's not what it is. Jesus is a little man on a cross in a building. He's not the Lord of our life in every moment of it. And we, we, we don't read the Bible. We have the Bible. You know, we read our family tree in it, but we don't study and apply it to our lives. Those are brainwashed people. We're Christians. And that was the mentality. And isn't it interesting how it's the people that are most familiar with Jesus that when they have an encounter with him that claims that he is more than what they always thought he was, that at that point, many people refuse him. That's exactly what happens to the people in Nazareth. No, no, we know who Jesus is and we're very comfortable with him. We even like him. He's a great person. But he's not. He's not what you're telling us or what you say you are. It's often the people that are the most familiar that are the most apt to reject in it. Um, But understand this, that grace is not universal. To refuse Christ is to refuse grace. And then finally, the final message or, or lesson that we gain from this passage is that even if the message of the gospel makes you angry or it makes you hate Jesus or it makes you want Jesus dead, or you want Jesus' testimony dead, whether it's in this world or whether it's in your own heart, that there is nothing you can do to try to destroy it. They tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. We will remove this testimony from our midst completely and thereby remove any guilt associated with rejecting it from our lives as well. But they were not able to do it, and neither are you. If you refuse Christ then the witness of who he is and the power of what he does in the lives of those that accept him will forever be a testimony against you 
that he is real and that his word is true and that there's power in his gospel. That's the power of Jesus and you cannot remove it. And so an incredible passage about Jesus being rejected in Nazareth. Well, it tells us in verse 31 that he came down then to Capernaum. So if you can remember, Capernaum was the farthest north portion on the map that you saw earlier. And that would become the headquarters of Jesus' ministry. That's where he would camp out when he was in the north. And it said he came to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he taught them on the Sabbath days. And they were astonished at his doctrine, for his word was with power. And in the synagogue there was a man which had a spirit of an unclean devil, or a demon, and cried out with a loud voice, saying, Let us alone, what have we to do with thee, thou Jesus of Nazareth? Art thou come to destroy us? I know thee who thou art, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Hold thy peace and come out of him. And when the devil had thrown him in the midst, he came out of him and hurt him not. And they were all amazed and spoke among themselves, saying, What a word is this? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the fame of him went into every place of the country round about. And he arose out of the synagogue, so after church, and entered into Simon's house. And Simon's wife's mother was taken with a great fever, and they besought him for her, prayed for her, to him, Lord, she's sick. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and ministered unto them. Now when the sun was setting the same day, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on them, every one of them, and healed them. And devils, demons, also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. And when it was day, the next morning, he departed and went into a desert place, and the people sought him, And came unto him and stayed him that he should not depart from them. And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also. For therefore am I sent. And he preached in the synagogues uh, of Galilee. And so in this passage, we move from a, a portion where Jesus is rejected to now a portion where Jesus is accepted. And this has been called by many to be just simply a day in the life of Jesus the Messiah. Because we follow Jesus through this passage from the the early morning when he goes into the synagogue and gives a, a message there to then the events that happen after going to the synagogue and then into the evening um, and then following uh, on the next day. But it's an interesting passage. It tells us um, that, that Jesus came into Capernaum that place that would be the headquarters of his ministry. And he went into the synagogue there. And as he began to teach, the people had a very similar response to the teaching that the people had down in Nazareth. That there was an authority, there was a power, they were amazed at the fact that he would speak to them so forthrightly and he quickly became the favorite teacher of the people uh, that were there. And then it tells us there that after the service was over, that there was a possessed man who had an unclean spirit, a demon-possessed man. And that Jesus rebuked that demon, and the demon came out of the man, and that the response of the people to that exorcism is that they said, hey, he's got so much power. 
How does he command even the unclean spirits? And we see them coming out of this uh, demon-possessed man. And so a double amazement as they now see the power through his hands and not just also through his words. And it tells us that because of that, his fame spread immediately. The people went out and they sounded out to all those in the surrounding villages that there's a man who can teach, but he can also perform miracles. There's power in his hands after the teaching is over and the fame of it spread. And then the same day, it tells us that he went to Peter's house for lunch. Um, Now, this is funny to me because I wonder if Peter got in trouble for this. I mean, can you imagine? There's Peter in the synagogue. I'm certain that the mother-in-law was still homesick. And now Peter invites Jesus for lunch. He says, hey, you want to come? Or maybe Jesus invited himself. He did that sometimes. But all of a sudden, Peter and a group of people are coming to the house. And I can imagine Peter's wife seeing them coming. She's like, are you crazy? What are you nuts? This house is filled with germs. You invited God over for lunch? You're out of your mind, you know. Like, you know so so there's, there's that aspect to it. But Jesus comes into the house. And he hears about the mother-in-law. And he comes over to her. And he lays a hand on her and she immediately recovers from the sickness, the fever that she had. And the contrast is so clear. It was a great fever and she went from the sick bed to immediately ministering unto their needs, participating in cooking the meal and making sure that things were right for Jesus to be here. It was an absolute incredible moment, I'm sure, for everyone that was there in the house. And then once the evening came and the sun was set and the Sabbath was officially over, people now allowed to move around again. It tells us that all those that had heard about Jesus' message and the exorcism that took place earlier, that they brought everyone they could find that was sick or that was demon-possessed or that had any problem at all, and they brought them to Jesus. And Jesus spent the evening and I'm sure into the night just touching, praying, revealing the grace of God to all those that were there in the thing that they all came to be healed. Now, I would say that that was a pretty good day. I mean, put yourself in Jesus' shoes for just one minute, or sandals, rather. And he goes from a great teaching in the synagogue to an exorcism, to the healing of a mother-in-law, to then multitudes of people coming around from all quarters to be healed and to have their problems solved by him. And I'm certain that he laid his head on his pillow that night and he thought, man, this is the way life is supposed to be. This is a spirit-led day and this is what it means to lead a spirit-led life. And so as we look at that and we consider it and we say, Lord, what is it that in this passage you want to drive home for us that are reading it 2,000 years later? I believe that the Lord would have us to think for ourselves that how is it that we can have a spirit-led, spirit-filled life. What's the key to having this kind of day? That from the time that we wake up early in the morning and we begin going through the schedule or the things that we have, all the way to the time that we rest our head, and when we rest our head in that evening, we can honestly look up to heaven and we can say, God, you made this day more than I ever could have made this day in my best efforts or or in the best planning that I could bring to it, or through the best resources that I have available at my hands. God, you blessed this day. How do we do that? I believe that the answer is given in the closing verses of the chapter. It says that he arose the next day and he departed to a solitary place alone. Mark's account of the same thing says that it was a great while before the day. 
that he arose up very early in the morning and he found a place where he could just get alone with God and he could begin to pray. And the reason why Jesus was was able to operate with such power and was able to have such effect within his life and make his days count for everything that they should count for was because of the way that he started his day. He sought daily direction from God. It was what we would call his devotional life. And it was important. So what can we learn? I think of the the Gospels all the time. And you think about if you could get into a time machine and you could go back and you could witness firsthand things that took place in the life of Jesus. And let's say you could visit three or four of those times. And you could say, I want to see that moment. What would they be? I know for me what they'd be. I know one of them would be the transfiguration when Jesus was pierced through with glory on the top of that mountain and the voice from heaven came down. I want to see that moment. That's a good one. I also want to see the moment when Jesus said, he that is without sin among you, let him throw the first stone. And all the men that were there gathered full of rage dropped their rocks one by one as they saw the stern look in his eyes and the shame of the woman who had been taken and cast before his feet. I want to see that moment when each of them realizes that they have no right to throw that stone and they drop it. Powerful moment. I would have loved to have been on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection. Remember when Jesus was expounding to them the things in the Old Testament concerning himself? They didn't know it was Jesus who was talking to them. But it says that their hearts burned within them when they heard him talk about the Old Testament prophecies and how they related to his ministry and his life. I want to hear that Bible study. But this encounter, this event right here, where Jesus gets up a great while before the day and he goes and seeks the Father, this would also be on my list of times that I could go and see. And here's the reason why. Because I want to know what took place in that time of devotion. I want to know what a devotional looked like when the Father was communing with the son. What did Jesus do? How did Jesus approach the father? What was the way that he prayed? What did it look like? What was the expression on his face? What position or posture was he in? I want to know all about that because I recognize and understand that that's where the power for everything else that Jesus did came from. It came from his connection to the father. Well, I know without even being there, Absolutely, that it involved prayer because the text tells us, maybe not specifically in Luke, but it does in Mark and it implies it here, that he prayed. That there was a prayer life, there was dialogue, there was communication where he was going to his father and freely speaking, not prayers, but prayer. He was talking to God, very simply. And prayer is something that we need in our devotional time where we just talk to God, very simple. No method, no backlogging. You know, sometimes I think, well, I haven't prayed for two days, so I have to make sure I remember the things I was supposed to pray two days ago before I pray the things I need to pray today. And what ends up happening is I get so confused I don't pray. But that's not the idea. Just pray. Talk to God. Bring your day before God. I know absolutely, without even being there, that it involved listening. That there was a portion of it, whether it was as he would read through or meditate on the scriptures himself, or whether it was just simply laying the events of his life and his day before the Lord, that he would spend time just listening to God, settling his heart for the still small voice. I believe that's one of the reasons why the morning time is ideal for devotions. Because it's before the day starts. It's before the confusion comes in. It's before there's a thousand other voices vying for our attention and our time. 
We need to hear from God and you need a quiet place and a quiet time to do it. Another reason why the morning is important is because it means that not one minute of your day has passed before you spend time with God. You can devote yourself at lunchtime or at dinner or after or when you go to sleep at night. You can do it, but the whole day has passed before you did it. Jesus, very early in the morning, sought God in prayer and in listening and all of it. Um, and, And in that, here's what happens, is that God inevitably will do something in that time that will change the course of our day. Whether he gives to us something that we're going to need for that day because of something only he knows that's coming. Or maybe he just gives to us a sense of his presence and as we move throughout that day, we move through it with the sense that we're being led. That God is with us. That maybe it's not like some eureka thing that happens and I say, oh God, this is what I was waiting for today. But there's a sense that, God, you're carrying me through it, and I know that you're with me, and there's an effectiveness in what I'm doing. And the tasks that I'm performing are counting for double, and you're using my life, and it's in your will, and there's a peace associated with that. And that comes because I've checked in with God in the devotional time. And here's the most amazing thing about our call for God to meet with us early in the morning. Listen. Do you realize that that's the thing that he wants most from us? Not the checklisted duty of saying, okay, I went through a devotional time. I did it. I had my devotions for today. No, listen, God wants to meet with you. Personal, intimate, real. That's what God wants. He didn't save us for service. He saved us for relationship. When Jesus was baptized, he didn't say, This is my beloved servant in whom I'm well pleased. He said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's what he's looking for. He wants relationship. He wants to interact. He wants to reveal himself to us. He wants to be the most important thing in our life. And here's what God knows. God knows that when we learn the secret of sitting in his presence, that for every single one of us, that part of our day alone will become the sweetest part of our day and of our life. And there is no substitute for that time that we spend meeting with God. And we see the results of that kind of life as we look at the ministry of Jesus Christ and the way that he carried out his days. I know that a devotional life, prayer life, Bible time, all of that is something that pastors just say. You know, we have to. How's your devotional life and all? And that's just kind of like the thing. And then you go, it's not, I know it's not what it should be and all this kind of thing. And, you know, and, and you kind of carry this guilt, like, yeah, I know I should do that more, but I don't do that more and all that kind of thing, whatever. It takes a work of the Spirit of God within your life to draw you to that place and win you to that place where you recognize that that's a worthy and worthwhile commitment. It's an interesting thing to uh, counsel um, people when they when they come in and they have issues and it's a funny thing that happens because usually when someone comes in they have like 10 fires going on in their life all at once and they're coming to you and they're telling you oh this is happening and this is happening and this is happening and, and you ask them that question you say well how is your time with God are you meeting with God are you reading his word are you in prayer is there a relationship between you and God and you always get the same thing well I come to church occasionally, you know, and, and, and all the whole thing. Listen, here's what I know about that person uh, in, in their life situation, that I might be able to give them something that will help them extinguish those 10 fires that are going on in their life at that moment. 
But what I also know is that as soon as those fires are extinguished, there's going to be 10 new fires that come up behind it. And the reason for that is because that they're not walking with the Lord. They might be walking with church. They might be walking with religion or a profession, but they're not walking with Jesus. Because when you walk with Jesus and there's intimacy and there's fellowship between heaven and earth and it's real in your life, then he leads your life and you swatch and you begin to see those things fall into place where they're supposed to be. So may God give us the wisdom and the vision and the Holy Spirit unction to be able to look at Jesus and what he did and take it as a lesson and an example and to say, God, would you do this in my life? And would you reveal yourself to me in a way deeper wherein I haven't known you yet? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us, Lord, for the wisdom that it imparts and for the person it reveals. We thank you for Jesus and the blood that, Lord, because of you, all of our sins are cast as far as the east is from the west, that you will remember them no more. We thank you, Lord, that you came to bind up the brokenhearted, to set captives free, to preach and show acceptance from God and not condemnation. And tonight, Lord, every single one of us is in such need of that grace that only you can give. We're unable, Lord, to produce the smallest ounce of fruit from our lives. We know that that can only come as you come into our lives and as you wash away our sins and as you make us new and as your Holy Spirit gives us the power to live the life that you intended for us to live. And so my prayer tonight, Lord, is that we wouldn't be those that reject Jesus that our familiarity with him wouldn't bring us to a place of contempt when he calls us deeper, but that we would receive all that you are and all that you have for us. And Lord, that the most important thing in every one of our lives would be our fellowship with you and the relationship that you call us into. So would you teach us and show us that reality, Lord, that no longer would it be about religion, or about works, or about weighing our good against our bad, or about a superstitious belief that if we do certain things, you'll do certain things. But would we hear the heartbeat and the voice of our Father tonight just saying, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. And may we know you that way, Lord, recognizing that it's not in us, to be able to produce that in ourselves. So thank you for who you are. We love your name. And we love you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.